So I've just got off a fantastic conversation with Barbara Tanzer from BT underscore breath coaching. Go check her out on Instagram. We did a podcast delving into uh, basically what she does and and how a, a singer has the expertise of how the breathing function works. And we delved into dysfunction of the rib cage, uh, lack of mobility in the rib cage, how we can manipulate this to improve uh, breathing, improve capacity of breathing, how the vocal cords uh, limit and control our breath and how we can utilize the voice and, and humming to to improve uh, breath coordination and what that impact that can have on both um, not just singing but also in exercise and, and uh, for athletes as well. It was a great fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it and I appreciated the time for that Barbara uh, spent with me. So if you enjoyed the episode don't forget to, to subscribe down here and can't wait for the next one. See you then. You're going to learn. You're going to learn from the people who are the best at breath. And I think that's the freedivers, right? Yeah, I, I agree. The freedivers and the singers. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> in, a, in a completely different way. But... Both, I think, are equally valuable for their side of of what breathing means, okay. right? Breathing as a means of communication or as a, just a voice facilitator, mm -hmm. which I think, well, this is really, of course, a big part of what I do because I am principally a singer and a voice pedagogue. And um, it's interesting how little athletes are using their voice as a tool okay and i would like to change that because it's you know it's built in it gives yep. you instant feedback um and it's really it's 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 really worth as much as all the gadgets that we can use outside of the body or even more yeah of course um and, and before we delve into to the voice, because that's like one of my questions, I know you like to use humming sound and the voice as a means to explore breath. I want to yes. come on to that. I want, do want to come on to that later, but I thought it'd be great to start with basically an introduction of yourself and how you how you got into breathing. Uh, and I don't want to make any assumptions, but obviously being a singer, the two tying together, as we just discussed, I'm, um, I'm interested to hear more around about that, really, a bit of your story. Yes, I... I started breath work or getting into breathing actually way after becoming a singer. Okay. And um, yes, so I was always quite a natural at singing. I had easy control of my voice. It was it was all easy. Even when I went to um, went, went to a conservatory, I studied, got my master's degree. Um, I never felt like I had to do a lot for it, mm -hmm. which in a way is a gift and also a curse because it means that I didn't learn anything about my body during my studies. Um, when I talk about other singers, I realize that there, there is this aspect of just that there isn't so much um, education on anatomy, on breathing, as there should be. Um, yeah. But I even, even, even the things that were there, I didn't, I wasn't really listening to them because I didn't need it. I have to be the, very the ego, honest. The it. ego was just up there and saying, "It's not. It's not. You were kind of. Uh, you, you believed in yourself enough, or you thought you were good enough that you didn't need the additional kind of uh, learning." Is yeah, I just I didn't feel the need to dive into any of this because everything yeah. worked just fine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. If, and if something's so, not broken, you don't need to fix it, right? Yeah, and in a way, yes, yeah, sure. But then comes a moment when things don't work so perfectly anymore. Yeah, and if that's on a huge opera stage uh, while you're singing the the main part in one of the most famous operas of all time, which is the Traviata, then you remember that moment, and then you kind of it's either okay, I have to stop doing what I'm doing because I don't know, or I have to dive in and try to just fill the gaps. Mm -hmm. And um, so I I started filling the gaps. I started being interested in my body. I, I mean, it was a very stressful time also for other reasons, but I, I felt like I was constantly on the edge 
and I could do my performances. My body was still keeping up, but I was uh, 30 at that time. And, you know, regeneration at 30 is not the same as regeneration at 20. <laughs> and so it was getting more and more difficult to keep up with the workload that I had. And so, yeah, I needed, I just needed to, to find a way into my body. And I'm not so much attracted, at least not for now, um, to the kind of esoteric or kind of spiritual side of breathing. Um, I, I, I see the total value in it. I, I absolutely, it's just that I'm not a person who is attracted by this kind of things. Mm. I'm, I'm interested in the, the why and the how and the, you know, Maybe that's just my Swiss and German um, side. It's maybe it's something like this, my culture. So I needed to find answers. Um, I, I, I wanted to finally, because in a way I had sung spiritually for all my life because it was just there. You know, I just kind of took it from where it was. And now all of a sudden it wasn't there anymore and I had to go and find answers. And the first method that I found at the time was MDH breathing coordination, which is a method um, based on the principles of Carl Stau, whose work is also now described in James Nestor's book, Breath. Okay. Yep. And um, well, Carl Stau was also um, primarily a singer, a choral director, and so he also used um, the breath and the voice in a combination in order to create what he called breathing coordination. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, this method was very close to my reality at that point, And that's why I went into it and I found it incredible. It's a manual technique. So we are manually working on mobilizing the ribs, on coordinating the um, intercostals with the diaphragm and to bring in the voice in order to make all of this happen. And so I did, I, I was part of this method for four or five years. Um, and uh, from then on, I realized that there's so much more in this and that it's not just one method that can have all the answers, even though some answers I found. But then I went on and I did a lot of other things. I collaborated with other people, like, for example, Brian McKenzie, Rob Wilson. Um, so... It's, it's great. I just love exploring different parts of the breath world. And who knows, maybe one day my path will take me into the more spiritual side as well. <laughs> yeah, and that's fantastic. It's a real uh, great story to obviously uh, come about of some resistance or an issue that you've gone for us to seek for a solution. And the obvious answer was to go into Dalvin's breath because that's what's necessary for, especially for opera singing. I mean, so there's a lot of long notes in, in, in opera and uh, different <laughs> variants and pitches, right? So you've got to really have that control of your breath. Yes, but I would argue that it doesn't matter what you sing. And even to a certain extent, speaking requires the same. Mm. It's yeah, maybe to a lesser, maybe to a lesser degree, but you can you could compare it to walking or running. You know, I mean, yeah. already for walking, you need to have um, certain prerequisites or a certain coordination in your movement in order to walk efficiently. And if you don't walk efficiently, well, okay, then running is going to be very difficult for you. Mm. And so basically, it all starts with just any kind of vocal use. And for most of us, this is speaking in the first yeah. place. So um, there's a lot of still potential in improving voices, not only sung, but but spoken as well. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, the lot of work that I do, I, I, I've measured uh, lung volumes, vital capacity, residual volumes, all that sort of stuff. And we do get quite a lot of singers come in, especially when they, like you say, they've lost their voice and then they go to a, to a respiratory specialist who will then go, okay, well, let's have a look at your lung function, have a look at your airways to see if there's any asthma or anything like that. And often they do have much larger uh, total lung capacities or vital capacities than, than their, their normal ranges. So do, yes. do you think that there's um, just, just without what you've, the additional stuff that you've learned, that singing itself is a form of training for breath? Of course. What, what I mean, if we look at what happens when we sing or when we speak, when we sing, it's it's 
um, multiplied, it's exponential. What happens is that when the vocal folds close, so when we produce a sound, when we phonate, basically we have two little cords inside uh, our neck, about right here inside our larynx. So you can touch and feel that when you put it, put your fingers here on the side. Uh, yeah, you can yeah. sound a little bit. Yeah. And uh, you can also feel if you make a sound, like for example, just an uh, that it vibrates. Uh, and so what happens is you have those two vocal folds and when we're just breathing and not saying anything, they're open like this. So they leave a big hole for air to pass. And when we make a sound, they approximate, they come closer together and they start to kind of open and close in a very, very rapid movement. Um, that it can range from anywhere around less than a hundred times per second when we make a very low sound to um, even several thousands, thousand times per second when we make a very high pitch. Okay. So what that means is that we basically close off the path that the air takes towards the outside. Mm -hmm. So in a way it's like building a dam, right? Yeah. We have the air that is moving towards the mouth or towards the nose nose and kind of moving out and we have this basically this door that is closing or this membrane that kind of becomes this restriction for the airflow and this of course in return creates a pressure underneath the vocal folds and the body needs to deal with that pressure because it's there and of course um, it means for the entire structure of the rib cage, also for the diaphragm, this pressure basically means constant training, mm. right? Yeah, because yeah. there's constantly this force. Of, I mean, for the diaphragm, what it means is if we have the resistance right here and we have this pressure that builds up towards the diaphragm, so back down towards the diaphragm, yep. uh, it means that the diaphragm has to then release, release um, uh, uh, its fibers against that pressure so is this on the expiration so you, that's you're on, talking course, oh, so, so, speaking, so, so or phonating is always on expiration yes yeah because i've, you know, I've delved into in performance into in spiritual muscle training now you're what you're saying is is this the pressure against the 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 expert the, the expiration so you're you it's yes. okay uh you're managing the the, the the pressure as it comes comes out so um, yes. that's, that's really interesting to see whether, so you'd get additional work from, uh, abdominal muscles as well, right? If you, if you, and core Absolutely. muscles, because let's say what we Absolutely. use when we're not having passive, um, uh, exhalation, we get, we're utilizing more of them, those muscles. So, um, that's sort of, you, we, you'd be adapting or getting that adaptation for training from singing as well. Yes. Well, you, the, the body needs to respond to that pressure. You know, mm. it's just physics. There's nothing we can do. There is the, when we have a force in motion and we close, we, we, we create a resistance. Uh, well, this pressure is building up. And that means that the structures that are, that are below the resistance point need to deal with that pressure, need to manage that pressure. And this is where, for example, breathing coordination comes in because it's about how efficiently that pressure is being dealt with. Mm. And since you mentioned the abdominals it's there's sometimes this misconception in in singing that you, we need to kind of squeeze the abdominals or we need to you know um somehow um yeah we need to somehow activate the, the abdominals mm. but the thing is that they are already activated as a response to that pressure and so if we need to do anything is that we just need to manage that response in order to make it efficient, in order to create this kind of circumferential response that doesn't favor one actor over the other. So the thing, the problem is that we have very different awarenesses for the different layers of our abdominal muscles, um, also for the front or the backside of our body, right? So yeah. very often what we do um, and again, I'm speaking mostly for singers, but this then plays also also into, into the athletic field or just for everybody. Um, when we think we need to do something with our abdominals, very often we will then do something with the rectus. Like the, mm. the rectus is, you know, it's just the, the go-to abdominal muscle, the one that we kind of have the most awareness of maybe. Um, and then what happens, and you can all, you can all try that for, of course, you, Martin, and the ones who are maybe going to be watching us, when you kind of 
tense your abdominal muscles, what do you feel in your throat? Mm, tension like, as well. Try to really try, try to tense your abdominals. Can you feel how things here become also really mm. tight? Yeah. And so for singers, this is really not what we want. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, because it takes away all the flexibility that we need here in order to be able to create all those different pitches, the different um it's this micro coordination of the of the vocal folds and all of the muscles around the vocal folds. So we do not want to add any kind of activity into the abdominals that is not necessary. But in order to be able to not do that, we need to first understand how our body responds to that pressure and how we can, um, yes, coordinate or how we can make that response most efficient. And most efficient, of course, the most efficient response is when it's just on a lot of different mm. um, players, right? When it's divided, when it's not all in like one point or one part yeah. so, so i've noticed in, I've, said, I've noticed Sorry. a lot of your um you know content you put on your igtv you know you talk we're talking about that that misconception of that even when we're just practicing diaphragmatic breathing people say belly breathing it's like it's not you know it's the yeah we mentioned have some expansion at the top of it is out out to the sides and out to the back as well and it's it's that uh, i guess it becomes a little bit about dominance of always only be able to see yourself in the mirror in front of you so you can't really see yes. what's going on behind it's exactly the same with the majority of people who train at a gym they'll just train the front muscles and then the back muscles will get get weakened so if if you're pulling that into breathing as well you're going to have some kind of dysfunction going on there aren't you sure and the diaphragm is a total 300 360 degrees mm. muscle and if we look at it the front part of it right here ah oh, yeah i'm wearing the perfect t-shirt today right here <laughs> right here is tiny you know the length of the muscle fibers in the front is really really short and they kind of get longer gradually as they kind of as we move around the ribcage around here and also in the back where we have those fibers of the diaphragm that go down into the lumbar curve we really have a lot of length, a lot of flexibility and elasticity there that we need to make available for our body. And if we only focus on the front part and only on the abdominal muscles to kind of pull and push and be active, we are actually taking away the possibility from the diaphragm to do that, right? Yeah. We are basically compensating without any need for it, just because this is a part that we can be aware of more easily than than to work really in a 360 degrees way and so yeah when we deal with that pressure it's even worse in a way because when we're just speaking few of us are actually aware that there's this back pressure happening in the ribcage um, that has an impact on the diaphragm then of course in turn has an impact on the entire abdominal wall the quadratus lumborum, all of those muscles around there. And so if we're not aware of it, if we don't know that it's there, how can we manage it, right? Yeah. And it then it becomes just kind of luck, you know, just dep it depends so much then on the, the, the coordination of our body as a whole and the strategies that we have, the movement strategies, the alignment strategies, all of mm. those things that make it so complex to be a human being. <laughs> so, so what would be some of the, um, I guess, it, you know, if, for example, you've got a single, you've got anyone who's struggling with their breath, who potentially is dominant in just that one area and lacking it around the other side, what would the sort of signs of that, or uh, I don't know if there's symptoms of that, that there would, that would be, um, that would come out in terms of looking for in, in, their, in, in people's breathing? Yes. So very often the symptom of it is that you lose your voice. Yeah. Okay. I've had patients who have come in many times to me saying I'm a singer who's lost my voice and I've never really understood it. So, and you know, just respiratory doctors just go, okay, well, we have no idea either. Yeah, so we need to go back to the pressure here a little bit because when we speak, our vowel sounds are quite short, right? The, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the part of the, the voice that makes the sound, they're quite short. We don't pull our vowels like this. Yeah. But when we sit, we do. And this means, of course, that this restriction, this back pressure that's happening is going to be happening in an exponential way. 
So if I, if I just talk, it's going to be short, 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 opening, closing, opening, closing. Um, so yes, we need a lot of coordination and maybe people realize this when they have to speak louder. So when, for example, people who have to do lectures or teachers very often have issues with their voice. But when we sing, we kind of really augment the time that the vocal folds are coming together and creating that resistance. So that means that, of course, the body needs to deal with that pressure much more extensively. And it means that if it doesn't, that, of course, this causes a lot more pressure for the vocal folds. Mm-hmm. And the vocal folds are tiny. <laughs> and also all the muscles around the vocal folds, those are really small muscles. And yes, they can take some pressure, but they're not all of the pressure. And so it's not only the vocal folds, but also the muscles around the vocal folds that, of course, can fatigue, can have um, issues, can be used in in disbalanced way that then just mean that there's going to be compensation, that there's going to be maybe uh, inflammation, that there's just going to be an abuse of that system. Yeah. And yes, then what happens is the vocal folds, uh, they, what, what they do as a go-to mechanism to protect themselves is well they swell they will just retain water they will swell Mm -hmm. and when vocal folds are swollen then of course they cannot vibrate as flexibly as when they're not of course so okay so yeah then so and is that some for the process that you manage to take people from uh, and then and and improve that is that something that you work with singers to to do yeah to help yes yes. yeah okay so what what, what, what's What's the sort of, uh, I guess, the, 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 the I don't want to, you could probably be here for hours talking about it, but the, the, some of the steps that you would then take to re uh, help program people with that sort of issue. Yes. So first, then we need to, from, from this issue, we need to get back to why that issue exists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked with people with nodules. So nodules are tiny little, um, like, knots, that come up on the vocal folds, usually in pairs, because the vocal folds, when they kind of hit together really strongly, when there's too much pressure, they kind of, they get blisters, we can say in a a simple way, they just kind of get blisters. Or they can have hemorrhages, so just little capillaries in the vocal folds that kind of burst open. All of those things are not really good. And because we were talking about like the symptoms, right? Or what, what happens when the breathing is not okay. So I usually go back to the breathing and we check what kind of breathing patterns or what kind of coordination patterns people have um, for, for speaking. And very often, and this goes back to the abdominals, very often um, we will find a very, very high activity in the abdominal muscles, especially when people want to speak louder or sing higher. And so we need to get them away from that. Mm-hmm. Because even if sometimes people need to even have surgery on their vocal folds, but of course, even if they have surgery and they remove the nodules or they, they remove the symptom here, they need to work on the pattern because if not, it's going to come back. Yeah. So it's really about working on a completely different awareness of that pressure that is happening inside the body and on how to kind of divide up that pressure on different players in order to create, um, yes, a very flexible environment that actually lets very little pressure go back up under the vocal folds, right? So we, we need to kind of, it's in a way, it's a little bit like um, absorbing pressure. This, this um, word absorption also comes from MDH breathing coordination. So, um it's really about how how can we minimize the pressure underneath the vocal folds to just the amount that we need, but not more, in order not to wear out all of okay. the muscles, the tiny little muscles in here. So it's like a minimal effective dose in, in, in a sort of a way. It's, um, again, if we're going back to uh, relating this to other forms of training, it's like, you know, what's the, uh, the, the, the minimum stimulus that you can create to, to cause the outcome that you want in terms of muscle, it'd be adaptation, or even singing, it's, exactly. it's creating vocal change. Thanks for that. Um, exactly. 
So I uh, just want to move on to uh, the reason you know, why we connected is obviously we connected through, um, we followed each other on social media for, for a little while on Instagram. And then I posted yeah. about the, the nasal breathing versus the uh, the mouth breathing and the little conversation I had with George Dallam over at Colorado University just through email. Um, and then you asked me to talk, uh, asked me a question about, you know, do you know much about rib mobility? And it was something of that... Um, I'm aware of in myself that uh, being a big guy, being some a guy who's always worked out in a gym, that I've probably I have lack of mobility in certain areas, and um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm looking to to learn more about what that is, what you do to improve it, and you know the benefits that can have on people's uh, I guess exercise performance. Yes. Um- <clears throat> So part of what I said, of course, with this kind of resistance and the pressure, I think it's pretty clear that when you have a container that is flexible, then it can absorb pressure much easier than when it's stiff. And here is the same thing is, of course, true for breathing. Um, we have this container here, the rib cage, And if that container is stiff, then of course it means that whatever's inside, and in our case, well, it's the lungs, whatever's inside will not be able to expand beyond just the point of resistance that the ribs are giving to the lungs, right? But the lung, uh, the, the ribs are, contrary to what many people would expect, incredibly flexible. So the ribs, not only do they have just the flexibility, which, okay, maybe minimal of the flexibility of the living bone and the cartilage. So the whole front part of the rib cage, of course, is is cartilage. It's not bone. Um, So we do have some flexibility in that, not so much. But what that that mobility comes from is really the rib joints in, in the back, so that where the, the ribs connect to the spine and this kind of possibility for those tiny joints to move, yes, a little bit. So, of course, mm. it's not like, like moving your arm or something <laughs> like this. But if you think of how long the ribs are and the shape of the ribs, then we, we, we get a lever. We, it's a lever. It's, it's in the length and the shape of the rib then actually lies its potential to move a great deal. When the rib the ribs uh, rib joints in the back are able to move, and again we we, we come back to this um, fact that our backside is kind of this mm. big unknown thing, <laughs> and uh, yes, the rib joints are definitely an even bigger unknown because they are not really on the surface, right? They're not on the surface of our back, but they kind of the the ribs kind of curve in a little bit on the backside, and the rib joints are actually really pretty much inside our mm. back yeah. at the at the body of the vertebrae. So it's very difficult to have a real sensory awareness of, of those joints moving, um, especially like single individual joints moving, right? Maybe the, the rib cage as a whole, we can get some awareness of that. But sensory awareness of the single rib joints moving is... I mean, I'm not saying impossible, but most yeah. people don't have it. And it's probably something um, that you wouldn't want to have either, because it was such a you know. If, if we if we detect such minor movements, then we're we're also open to things like anxious worries about okay, it always being there with such a significant and small um, a, a bone structure. If you were to notice, be able to notice all the movement in that, you would be like, okay, what's going on there all the time? Uh, I, I, I guess. I, I I'll be honest with you. I've never never thought of the ups and the, uh, the upsides and downsides yeah. of of realizing. But I mean, on the other other hand, your fingers those are also quite pretty tiny, and it's very good that we're move, that we feel them all the time, right? Mm. So, um, I think it's not necessary to have a, like a real sensory awareness of each yeah. rib joint, of course, but. To have a sensory awareness of what it means to have mobile ribs, this I think is absolutely vital um, for singers and especially also for athletes. And the athletes that I work with have very, very little of it. Hmm. And that means that, again, like with all things awareness, then it's just luck. You know, it's if you are um, naturally coordinated in a way that your ribs are moving well, for example, people with hypermobility in the like thoracic spine or um, hypermobility throughout the ribcage area are in a way lucky because 
they will have much less stiffness around that around that area unless they create some kind of compensation strategies that make them stiffer than others but that's another subject but um most people that i see it's really just the complete lack of education of the role of the ribs in breathing mm. you know because at school we learn that ribs protect the heart protect the lungs and then that's it there's not a lot of education on how important the ribs are in coordination with the diaphragm in order to make um efficient breathing possible right so i think many people at least from my experience from the hundreds and thousands of people that i've seen i think it's just very surprising to them to see and to feel how much their ribs can move mm. and so now you ask me how i get to that um i work manually a lot so not to say that i do massage or something like this it's just really that sometimes with the touch especially in an area that we don't have a lot of sensory awareness the touch especially of another person can really point the mm. literally point the finger and put focus on an area and so it's it's really a lot about um learning to understand and learning to be aware of certain things that are happening anyway and then to understand if what is happening is sufficient for what we are doing right now or if there needs to be some kind of an augmentation of that so for example working with cyclists is very interesting because of course they are in a position on their bike like on a race bike that is basically really bad for breathing right their their spine is not in its usual s shape you know you're kind of hunched over and what does that mean for the ribs well it means for the ribs that basically they cannot move as much as they could uh, or as much as they can for a swimmer or for a runner yep and so we need to find strategies to how how can we find the optimal and the maximum rib movement in a certain position and this without having any kind of back awareness is really difficult and then sometimes what happens is because maybe they are um they are used to anyway kind of breathing a little bit more um with accessory muscles like they'll use their neck muscles or yes their abdominal muscles in an excessive way um and how do we get away from this and redirect the movement the rib movement the intercostals how do we redirect this in order for the air that we need to get into this part of the lungs which is well the biggest part of the lungs right we have 2/3 of our lung tissue here laterally and in the back and so yes rib movement is something that uh, when people understand it when people start to feel it they once they can once they feel it they cannot unfeel it yeah it's it's a really cool thing and so once they feel it um i once had one telling me an athlete telling me wow it's like having a backpack filled with like additional lungs and then of course you want to kind of make that move it's you know once you start to realize this it feels so good Mm. So you kind of you want to perpetuate this you want to continue this. And yeah. um yeah so so I work manually but manually mostly with really just touch and awareness and mm-hmm. while I touch or while I I will just gently um stimulate maybe a certain movement or guide a certain movement and we do um breathing exercises while I'm while I have my hands on people. Yeah. And this um creates this kind of double awareness of they feel what's happening inside their body um in a way better because maybe I can put some pressure on the side so again you know there's more more focus on that area and and I can guide them in in this movement. Okay. So it's really it's very gratifying. So yeah, so that sounds awesome and I've got some uh, I've been dying to ask a question for a short while but I want to just before we go into potentially having a look at um or discussion about what kind of exercises you do 
Uh, are there any behaviors that we do every day that actually are causing our ribs to be more um, uh, tightened and rigid? Um, you know, for example, me just being sat here, I'm thinking my back's constantly on the back of the chair and, and I'm being molded to that chair. Is there anything that people should be more aware of to, to ensure that they're avoiding those sort of behaviors? <laughs> Potentially, any behavior can limit <laughs> the mobility of our ribs, just mm. like it. Any behavior impacts on just the shape of our spine. Like yeah. the, the spine and ribs are, of course, they're just together in this. <laughs> and so, of course, we all have certain patterns of maybe standing more on one foot or like kind of leaning towards one side. And of course, this has an impact on how ribs can move and how uh, on compensation in in certain muscles um but i i really i have to come back to this i think the biggest impact is just the not knowing that the ribs can move hmm. so just the, movement the, the in general not, isn't it the lack, the lack yes. of movement there yeah just yeah. Th this complete non-awareness of even wanting the ribs to move you know, yeah. it's because we, we like people who never think about their ribs moving. Well, the ribs might not be. And then, of course, if they're not moving for a long time, like with everything, you know, you lose range of motion. Um, your muscles will your muscle fibers will change. It will just not be um, as much of a living used organism. Right. It's kind of in the dark. Yeah. And so. Um, I think this is the, the greatest impact because for whatever, you know, whatever position we're in, whatever movement we make, our body is incredibly able to compensate for things and to find strategies. And, you know, I have people with incredible scoliosis, for example, mm. where you would think, and in the beginning, it's true, where you really have big differences in rib mobility on one side or the other, or both sides are completely blocked. But even with like strange shapes or shapes that are not normal, we can still find the maximum or optimal mobility for that shape. Yeah. So then, of course, when we talk about athletes, we're talking about a great amount of detail because they need to be efficient really to the max. It's the, their window is just much smaller of what can still be improved and what can still be done because they've been using their body um, in a very specific way for a long time, usually at least somebody who has become a professional athlete, right? Mm. So, so the window in which we can operate is pretty small, but this small window can have a huge impact. And on people who are not athletes, who are just like normal people, just, mm -hmm. you know, the ones that we meet on the street, Maybe they have zero awareness of what their body can do. And so there's a big window where we can just do little things and it will improve also for them a lot. So it's just about how different people um, perceive their bodies and how how efficient they already are. But rib movement is something that is an issue for everybody. Of course. Now I can think of um, that I work with um, populations like yourself who have got scoliosis who will come in to, for testing to have a look at the impact it's having their lungs. You know, they get mm -hmm. restrictive lung disease where their lungs are squished because their their spine shaped a certain way, and they probably have sure. a lot more rigidity in their in their ribs, and that yeah, it makes them it's challenging for them to take a big breath in, and they're shallow breathers, and it's all up in the mm -hmm. in the upper chest, which again makes it more more challenging for them and I, and I can see how much of a benefit this sort of stuff could could be for them you know some of them might only have a you know a vital capacity the amount they can breathe in sometimes it's only a liter or a liter of two and uh, that's mm. that's that's minimal for amount of air that you can actually just get into your lungs passively but you could probably by improving um rib uh, flexibility or orbability you can probably add 500 milliliters 600 milliliters of air per breath, um, maximum breath actually in there. And that's going to be a, you know, a huge impact on them. And that's, that's one side. 
that's one side of like uh, the spectrum. And then you've got the other side of the spectrum who, you know, for example, Usain Bolt, we all know that he's had issues with his spine. And I wonder whether that was something that he was constantly having to, to manipulate to, to ensure that he's getting the best from his performance as well. I know he's a sprinter, so it's a lot of it's a breath hold or the breathing's different than sprinting. But for the training sure. that he's been doing, I'm sure it's, uh, I'm sure it's definitely going to be some impact there. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And it's I, I did very, very amateur, but I did a little um, case series, I think five years ago on just using this manual kind of work on it was eight different athletes. They all did different sports. We went from, um, well, a lot of them were runners, but there were cyclists, there were swimmers. Um, so we a biathlete. We did um, just just work on their ribcage just to see how that impacted on everything else. And it was pretty interesting. We did 10 sessions and uh, all of them said that it greatly improved not only their just feeling of that they could breathe better, but it also improved just the way that they were thinking about their body, mm. the way that they, especially young athletes, you know, they sometimes tend to go all with their head and they want this and, you know, maybe, maybe it's getting a bit better because there's so much more awareness out now, but um, when I was young, it was like when you're an athlete, it's like your head wants something and the body somehow has to follow and you do like <laughs> you'll pump it full of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really bad. Yeah. And so, and so just to create this awareness and this, this kind of complicity, this partnership with your body and that in your head, you can do so much with awareness um, to create more efficiency and to make it easier for your body to help you reach the goals that you set in your head. So this is something that I'm very passionate about. It's about athletes becoming more sensory aware of their body and understanding what is happening. And I think there's still a lot to be done. I don't know how it is in mm. Australia, but um, here most coaches, at least in the sports that I've been following, they don't have a lot of education themselves about, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of things, or they just don't deem it very necessary, or they're like, ah, you know, that's going to come, uh, ach, you know, this, you just have to, you just have to stick with your training plan. And then that's going to all happen by itself. Well, yeah, sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. And then what, you know, then you'll have injuries, or you have demotivated people, you have frustrated athletes, you have kids who think, who know that they could do better, but there's something limiting them and they don't know what it is. And the coach basically is just hammering in, you know, those intervals and you have to do this, mm. but nothing about this complicity with your body, which is your, well, it's your equipment, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a, I think it takes a long time for uh, coaches to, to be able to integrate that sort of stuff into sports. Now I look at some of the coaches over here in the AFL and I've had conversations with them about sleep and a lot of the research in sleep, or sleep and performance comes out of the Australian Institute of Sport. And I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. well, I'm having conversations with uh, coaches and uh, performance managers over in, in the AFL, the Australian Football League here. And they're not even they're not even aware of the literature or or, or the, the knowledge of, of what how sleep can improve performance, let alone, you know, getting more specific into a, a, an area of rib mobility, that sort of stuff. It's like, it's really been able to connect with the individuals, like the actual, the athlete themselves, yourself to say, hey, look, this could be something beneficial to you. And then in 10, 15 Thanks. years, maybe you'll, someone will come through and you get some feedback back and that will go back through the coaches and it gets through. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough, it's a tough gig trying yeah. to get this into, into mainstream word really. Yes, but, but, but I, I'm so happy that we are kind of fighting for this all over the world yeah, and that we're yeah. talking about it. And it's so important because it's there's still this kind of reticence, you know, to... Um, and I don't know if this is also because coaching and all. also if you go to like sports universities and, you know, when you look into like the more exercise science kind of side... Um, I don't want to be a sexist in any way, but it's very male-dominated. Mm. And, um, well, there's this kind of, still this kind of mentality of, you know, you have to push through, no pain, no gain, bam, bam, mm. bam, bam, bam. And, you know, and as soon as something is not okay, you're kind of, ah, whatever, you're just not strong enough. Or, you you know, you just can't, um, you, you just, you're not made for this or something like this. It's exactly the same in singing. 
maybe yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. so male yeah. but it's exactly <laughs> the same thing um and then there, there's this whole question of talent right what is talent for sport or for singing and i really i really hope that in the future with you know helping people to understand their body better to understand their limitations better that we can basically bypass this only only talented people or only people who have those kind of um traits can become really good athletes or really good singers because it's not true mm. you know every now and then you you have this person who comes out and it, it's really like what what is she doing there or what is he doing there but they are amazing not because they were so talented but because they had to push through so many different things and because they wanted to understand and that's why they became the best at at what they're doing and so i hope that the feeling side which maybe yeah. yes it's more female kind of side but the feeling side gets more accepted even in male dominated areas because it's it's just such a waste of of incredible performance um, potential if we mm. don't look at that side at the, the body and how it feels and not just how it works but also how it feels and what that tells us and how the athlete can then become so much more independent because the athlete themselves or the singer themselves can say look today i feel i feel this they don't need to go into detail but you know i i feel this and they can lead the the physiotherapist or whoever then works with them really to to whatever is the problem and they're not just kind of a passive person just lying there and just be like mm. okay you treat me you need to fix me no yeah. you have an active role in in fixing whatever is wrong in your body it, you cannot always rely on other people to tell you what to do you need to become active you need to become aware and this only goes through sensory awareness feeling so yeah i hope no, I there's going to be much of this I, I mean i definitely agree i think um you know there is an over reliance on 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 other people to to fix you and um you know to fix issues that you have your doctors are put there you're meant to fix me well actually no uh you've got to take care of yourself and be aware of your own body first but also the other issue for me yeah, just quickly touch on it before we move on. Is it's just like yeah, you know, let's get back to exercise physiology, not exercise technology. It's we've we're coming so pushed in towards using technology to make us better that it's it's actually making us less aware of our own physiology. And it's like that's the avenue it seems to be going down. And it's uh, and that sort of stuff that Brian McKenzie and Will Shift Adapter touching on a lot. It's actually about managing your own physiology, and that stuff is is, is so powerful and it's needed now. We need to remember that we are human beings at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, I wanted to um, move on to the to the uses of. Uh, you talk about a lot of sounds and and, and humming, and you and you, you use you yes. use that sort of stuff to 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 build awareness of around where air is in, in the lungs and the lungs themselves. And I know there's a lot of research coming out with about humming in the production of nitric oxide and you know, increasing it by tenfold, and and the uh, the potential benefits of that sort of stuff as well. You just dive into that for me because I'm it's, it's something that I'm interested in. Um, a part of me is like, okay, well. I'm sat there do my breathing. And if I start making noise with humming, people are then going to look at me and they're going to be like, okay, what's going on here? But I know there's potential to it. Um, and I want to break that stigma. Yeah. I mean, maybe there will be a day when it's just completely normal that, you know, athletes are humming on their warm ups. Mm. We're not, we're not there yet. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, if you go into a gym, you have you you hear all sorts of sounds mm, yeah. you know i'm very vocal and, in a gym people look at me like like that's just me being me letting just letting it out <laughs> yes but and that's good and but there you know there is there comes in this whole coordination issue of how we deal with that pressure mm. because especially if you're doing for example weightlifting and that kind of stuff um uh if you close your glottis, if you close the vocal folds, of course, in order to stabilize your core, in order to kind of protect the spine and, and go into all of this and, of course, be stronger, um, there can be damage to the voice if that pressure is not really managed in a circumferential way. And again, there's just um, this overactivity of the, of the um, abdominals, especially the rectus abdominis. Um, and there's not a lot of awareness of what's happening in the back. Mm. 
Mm. Um, but yeah, so let's let's get back to humming, which <laughs> weightlifters rarely do. It's no. more like in like a. Um, I always felt like I was in a in a in a room where people were giving birth <laughs> when I'm in the gym. <laughs> so humming humming is is a very um it's a very gentle way of using your voice and that is because of course your mouth is closed the air will come will go out of the nose which already causes a slight restriction of course of the air here on top of the vocal folds so then if we go back to what we said in the beginning we have this air coming up the vocal folds when we when we make a sound like a hum mm, they are causing a restriction here but they're also of course letting a little bit of air through and now if that air that goes through is just basically like this kind of expulsed then this means that the vocal folds will receive a lot more pressure from below than any kind of pressure from above okay and this is this is a lot of cause of issues for people using their voices when they're screaming, for example. We do have um, on top of the vocal folds here, there's the pharynx and the pharynx basically also has some flexibility to a certain extent, especially to the sides. It's a muscle kind of muscle container for, well, when we breathe, of course, air, but also um, food or what we're drinking that kind of sends it into, into the esophagus. And of course, we also have them our mouth, which can which also is kind of like a a sound cave, a resonating space. And so I can hum in many different ways. So if I hum, you can hear that there's not a lot of sound development because I have not used my pharynx as kind of it's a bit like if you imagine a cobra kind of like whoop something mm -hmm. that kind of expands a little bit here and if you expand that a little bit here there's also a pressure inside that space and that pressure will go back also down to the vocal fold so you basically then have two pressures the subglottal pressure and the supraglottal pressure and those two pressures if we're man if we manage to to um, work them or manage manage them efficiently they're going to protect your vocal folds because, well, it's two, if you have two pressures that are kind of pushing against each other, the point where they meet, the pressure is zero. Neutral, it's not yeah. going to be completely zero, but it's going to be very, very little. So if I hum mm, mm, like this, my vocal folds basically get pushed up by the pressure that's underneath. If I hum mm, Mm, like this, using the resonating potential in my pharynx. Then I have pressure building up in my pharynx, also pushing down. And my vocal folds are very happy because my larynx can stay in a stable position. Okay. Uh, maybe you can even see that on my larynx here. If I do, mm, 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 it's kind Keep of pushing up. Yeah. Kind of move up a little bit. And if I do, mm, mm, it's probably almost coming down Some a little down. bit in yeah. that low say, range yeah. of pitches. Okay, so this is very a very important aspect of of humming because it's it's about also about how to hum. Not every hum is going to have the same beneficial um, aspect, and um, I hope there's going to be more research about this. I, I'm not aware of any research on the exact form of how to hum in order to get most out of it. Yes, but. For, for a singer, it's pretty clear because what we want to get out of it is more sound yeah. and you can only get more sound, more harmonics if your if your pharynx is reacting to a good way. Wait, I don't know. I lost you a little bit. You're back now. Maybe you're back. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah I can hear you. You, you broke up a little bit, but you're back. That's good. Yes. So, so we have this hum, which in a way, yes, makes us aware of the supraglottal pressure, so the, what's happening with air and with vibration in our pharynx. And of course, if you place your hand on your chest and you hum, and you hum, you can, well, of course you can feel some vibrations if you do it in a low pitch, but those are just kind of sympathetic vibrations um, um, underneath the vocal folds. So it's there's no sound developing really here because it doesn't go anywhere where it goes out into the air so this sound it doesn't really it, it's not part of 
the sound that comes out of our voice. But it's just this kind of sympathetic vibration. And then we we have, if, if there is good coordination, if there's flexibility and good pressure management, then you can feel how your intercostals are slightly kind of popping out when you're humming. Mm, mm, because you have the expiratory mm. movement yeah. of your diaphragm. The diaphragm is moving up, but you have the restriction. And so, of course, you have this kind of coming coming up, but there's a restriction. So, of course, it kind of pushes everything out as if you had like, I don't know, a cream puff and you kind of pushed on both sides. You have <laughs> the cream on sides, right? So, mm, mm. and so this kind of feeling of expansion on the exhale if you exhale with a sound, for example, a hum, that's a really great way also to work on your rib mobility. It's a great way to become more aware of that pre that pressure. And it's basically intrathoracic pressure mm -hmm. and how that then impacts on your abdominal wall. So a hum has just so many positive things. I mean, of course, there's this nitric oxide thing that, yes, one study has found. It's something that is great, but it's not something that we will really feel, right? It's something mm. that happens in our body and we're thankful for it. And we know that humming does that to us, even though, again, I would be very careful on what kind of humming, because I'm not sure that all, like if, if it's a disbalanced, discoordinated hum, not sure if the benefit even in nitric oxide is is the same because there is less vibration, less stuff happening. So I, I don't know about this. Yeah, to true. be to be to be researched. Yeah, of um, course. But yeah, so and then changing pitches to realize what does that do? Because there, if there is a higher pitch, there's going to be more subglottal pressure because the vocal folds spend more time in a closed position. And so all of those things are just great. <laughs> and I think athletes could benefit a great deal from using the hum, using an efficient and coordinated hum in order to, yeah, create more elasticity, more movement in their rib cage and more balance in yep. their okay. abdominal engagement. Thank you. That's, uh, it's going to be something that I start putting into because when I'm doing some of my stretching, I'm doing some breathing. Now I can do it with humming as well to try and um, be an adjunction to, to, to that sort of, um, I guess, yeah exercise um final you know, question before we wrap up sorry your, sorry just yeah. place your hands on your ribs cage on your abdominals when you hum just yeah at the beginning just just let that kind of happen and just try to feel what is happening where do i feel anything that's kind of getting tight or is there this kind of nice flexible yes it's an activation but it's kind of like an expanding activation not a kind of not a not so concentric, not so kind of squeezed. It's more a stretch than a squeeze. Thank you. So I've seen you use um, uh, balloons a fair bit as well. Yes. Um, you know, I looked in, obviously with balloons, you've got a, you're creating a pressure inside there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so what, what do you, what do you, how, how do you use them? Do you use them more for, for singing or, or with, with athletes or combination of the both? What, what's, what's the, um, the main concept of utilizing the, the, the balloon for, for breathing, breath control, breathing coordination? I would say that with singers, I will use balloons in probably 90% of the cases with athletes. I will use balloons only if the athlete is really interested in getting into a lot of detail. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the benefit of the balloon really is to create one pressure chamber that makes it visible what is happening inside. So if I blow up a balloon, and those ones, oh, I have to use a different one. Those really like to stick together because they're biodegradable and they don't have this powder inside that is <laughs> tastes horrible, but it's yeah, very it beneficial for the balloons not to stick. There we go. Okay, so if I blow up a balloon, basically, um, it's one, it's one pressurized chamber, right? So I have 
air here, air going through my trachea, into the, bron into the bronchial tubes, into the alveoli, and all of it is basically one big chamber of pressure. So if I blow up the balloon, um, I forgot who, which physicist, maybe you know, um, said that the pressure, the atmospheric pressure in one chamber, Bohr. it's always the same everywhere. Was it? Was it Bohr? The, the Boyle's law? Is yeah, it, it's uh, something with B. Yeah, pre uh, Boyle's law. Pressure, pressure is the inverse to the, you know, the volume. Pressure is inverse to the volume at a given temperature. A given temperature. Yeah, something like lines. that. So that's super interesting, isn't it? Because it means that whatever happens in my balloon also happens in my lungs mm -hmm. and I can see it. So, so that creates, you know, because it cre again, creates so much more awareness of what is happening. Yeah, it's inside the visual the awareness of what's actually going on. Yeah. Yes. Visual. And also if we add sound to it, audible as well. Yeah. Yes. It's so, so interesting. And so, for example, when I blow up the balloon with no sound, right, without using my vocal folds, I can dump a certain amount of air into the balloon in a very short time. I can do... <sighs> took me one second, one and a half seconds to kind of blow up the, the balloon to the size almost of my head, right? And maybe somebody with bigger lung capacity than me could do more in one, mm. just one exhale into the balloon. Um, and so, of course, I have, I have this volume. It was not difficult at all. And now what, what happens if I do the same, but I close my vocal folds? So I blow up the balloon with using my voice. And it's so interesting because we don't realize that when we're speaking, how much our vocal folds are slowing down the amount of air that mm. is coming out, right? But when we do it with a balloon, it would take me a long time to get to the, to the same volume. And it makes it visible. Right. It makes it visible how much resistance the vocal folds really pose to that outgoing stream of air. Yeah, okay. And that's one of the part why one of the reasons why I love using balloons, because they make things visible that otherwise wouldn't. Yeah. They um, create an awareness also of pressure. Like if you blow up a balloon and it's all floppy in the beginning, right? If you blow it up like this, it's not floppy anymore. It becomes pretty stable. So when I inhale, basically my rib cage and my whole upper body is much more stable just already because there's this volume of air inside of my upper body. Right? And this yeah, is sure, why, yeah. of course, when we... Yeah. When we use the abdominal press for yeah, weightlifting or lifting something heavy, other things than weights, or of course, expulsing um, people at, when we give birth <laughs> or just you know, other things, then of course we would never do th those things on an exhale. Like we would never exhale and then hmm. push or exhale and then lift a weight. Like we need the physical volume, we need that that mass of air inside our upper body in order to be able to stabilize it, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. And yeah, and, and the balloon makes the all of this, yes, and the balloon makes all of this um, visible and uh, just creates great awareness. We can then go into great detail of where we are feeling what or yeah. if there are any muscles that are overactivating, or if there is any, you know, any, there can be feelings of, of just tightness or pain or in the rib cage. And I guide people through that sensory awareness with, with the balloon as a restriction. And that's I find it incredibly valuable. Yeah. That's a great little tool to number one. Yeah. Visualize audible, see it, but also then be able to, yeah, utilize the pressure and the change to be able to uh, somatically help people uh, feel the difference as well. Exactly. So, thanks for that. Um, and this is, so, this is just the balloon without the hole, just to say, <laughs> because of course, if you put a hole into the balloon yeah. and you have variable sizes of the hole, 
then you can create the pressure and you have still you still have the visible visual aid and you still have the flexibility and this kind of non-invasive um, flexibility of the balloon. So other than some other inspiratory or expiratory muscle trainings that are um, working with fixed things and it can be pretty brutal, the balloon is much more tender. And so I developed together with, um, with a friend of mine, we developed actually, um, a tool that you insert into the balloon so that you have different kinds of holes so that then we can, we can also work on different resistances in the balloon. We just, um, got the patent on that one. So it's going to come out in the next or the patent pending. So we're going to bring yeah. that out in the next months. Fantastic. I look forward to, to seeing that and seeing that come out. So there's a, there's a lot of key, key takeaways for me there. You know, it's um, number one, thinking about uh, bringing the awareness that the ribs are, uh, you know, that they're, they're maneuverable, that the stuff that move, they're not, they're not rigid and focusing on, uh, utilizing uh, breathing looking at breathing mechanics to to ensure that we're getting that movement around the back at the sides not just the front being aware of the dominance of the uh, the abdominals and just paying attention only to that um how our vocal cords limit the air coming through and how we can actually uh, utilize uh, voice and humming and and singing to to learn that coordination and then the balloons as well so it's been a jam-packed episode i've really enjoyed learning I've just been sitting here well, soaking it all in. I'm not going to go away and write some notes. And I love talking about it, as you might have noticed. So I <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's you're passionate about it, and that's what absolutely it's, it's, that's what makes the best and most enjoyable conversation. So I appreciate that, and thank you. Um, well, thank you. How do people get in touch? Follow your content. Um, you know, just um, uh, put your put your information out there. Yes. So, so my Instagram is bt underscore breathing coach. I think that's the, where I put most information because I think Instagram is great for that. It creates this kind of pretty safe space where you can put information out there. Um, then um, my website is www.voiceup.si. Um, now that he, at least here in Europe, we can travel again. I'm happy also we have a place where people can stay and work with me uh, intensively. So we people can come to me to Slovenia and we can work together. Or of course, we can work online as well. The best is to just contact me through the website or on Instagram, on Facebook, I'm um, Barbara Tanze, um, um, breathing breathing coach, and I'm on TikTok, but that's only in Slovenian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a crazy, that's a crazy wild ride, and I, I feel too old for this multiple times a day. But it's fun because you have such a direct connection to the people. And uh, I tried, I tried to introduce breathing on TikTok to my Slovenian population, but they are way more interested in why I live in Slovenia and uh, how many languages do I speak? How old am I? So it's <laughs> much more superficial. So I, Instagram, I think, is, is your best bet. Excellent. No, I haven't moved on to TikTok just yet because of that reason. I'm thinking, what what would I even talk about? It looks like entertainment to me, and I've got to um, I've still got to reveal that um, comedy side of my personality for, for social media just at the moment. <laughs> Well, you know, there is a lot of great content on TikTok, really educative content, people who are talking about their experiences, uh, mental health, uh, LGBTQ, like a lot of really interesting stuff. I guess it's mm. just about the algorithms and, you know, liking the right things and getting to the right people. But I, I mean, I hope that there's going to be many of us doing breath work on TikTok because this is where all the kids are and we need to start you know we need to start to educate children it has to be part of a curriculum yeah. Yeah. this is where I the agree. hhb foundation is so important because they need to learn that this is a tool for them to use it's built in it's right there it doesn't cost anything and it makes such a huge difference in people's lives yeah, it certainly does. You know, the younger that we can teach them, the, the more chance and opportunity in, in their life they've got to actually be able to use these tools and, and to be able to progress in their life as well. Thank you, Barbara. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Martin. And I wish you a lot of pleasure in Bali. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>